Welcome to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. We just came back from a riveting trip overseas where we were in Rome, London, Tel Aviv, and all over the places that are being affected by American Middle East policy the most. Not so much being worried about how the Europeans are looking at this angle, or how the Israelis are starting to, starting to be concerned about their election prospects about 26 days from today, but more on how American policy is affecting those who we are allied with in the region and those who we are fighting. We have an exciting program today, being joined by Benjamin Baird, a senior fellow at Islamist Watch, and also a very special guest coming directly from Tel Aviv University. But before we begin, I thought I would talk a little bit more about the conclusions and some of the observations that I was able to encounter when I was overseas. For those of you who don't know, I spent about 10 years living in Israel from 2004 until 2013, on and off here and there through some of those years, but through the better part of my 20s. Having lived there, I experienced four different conflicts, looking at the Lebanon War in 2006, Operation Cast Lead, which was a fight between Hamas and Gaza and the Israeli Defense Forces in 2008 and 2009. Operation Pillar of the Fence, which took place in 2012. And observing from afar, but having many friends who I served with, in Operation Protective Edge, which took place in 2014. Many good men died during these battles. Friends, including local Michael Levin, a member of the youth group that I grew up with here in Bucks County, north of Philadelphia. Others, like Sean Carmelli of Los Angeles, a few other Americans, but dozens of Israelis, and even some who had volunteered from overseas, like those in Russia, France, the United Kingdom, and Australia. Not to mention the thousands of casualties which took place on the Palestinian side. But the tables, which have ever so been against the Israeli government and its army and its people, where there have been 22 different Arab states at one time or another in different states of war against Israel, and even non-state actors like the Hamas, Islamic Jihad, Fatah, a secular kleptocratic party ruling over the West Bank, Hezbollah in Lebanon, which is becoming more and more part of this state rather than just a terror organization, and even the dictatorship under Bashar al-Assad, formerly his father, Hafez al-Assad, and different movements, with only two countries, Egypt and Jordan, being able to reach a peace agreement with Israel. You would think that after 70 years of conflict, there would have been some advancement between Israel and her neighbors. Now, looking at it from the personal side of having seen the rockets fall in Israeli city centers, and the artillery and tanks and infantry going into Lebanon and Gaza, at least watching from the local news and sometimes watching very up close. Versus the other situation where you have indiscriminate attacks against Israeli civilian targets falling on, like I said beforehand, Israeli city centers, that year after year you would think there would be a way to be able to evolve from this current detente of violence. Or not even detente, this similarly cycle of bloodshed, which year after year continues to repeat itself. And now, and as we've talked about on this program in the past, we've seen that while the actors which are directly involved in the kinetic action, 
that takes place in the region feel it the most. There are different angles and different actors outside of the region which always have to opine regarding their opinions on the roots of the conflict and why it continues to move forward rather than to subside. Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Andre Carson, other members of the House of Representatives, including our very own Dwight Evans here in Philadelphia, who is an original co-sponsor of a piece of legislation which seeks to address a one-sided conclusion to the conflict. And on the pro-Israel side, American evangelicals, American conservatives, moderate American Democrats, the American Jewish community, the American Baptist community, and just a regular standard bearer of individuals who understand the value of the U.S.-Israel relationship. For as long as the state of Israel has been in its existence, there have been its American detractors and its American supporters. Yet through and through, a gross majority, wide majority of Americans have supported that relationship, including in President Donald Trump's budget, which was just released yesterday, a $3.3 billion allocation for Israeli defense aid, of which 80% has to be spent in the United States. And year after year, more of that money will be spent on American industry in order to support American-Israeli security, or at least our joint security interests. But going back to being in Israel during election time, so I was in this country for 10 years. I saw these wars ebbs and flows. I had friends who I had lost. I also was reading the American press and seeing their opinion on it, now having been in the United States for the better part of six years, five, six years. I see that the opinions are always the same. A war breaks out. The Palestinian supporters line up and blame Israel. The Israeli supporters line up and find a way to defend their right, the Israeli right to self-defense. So how are the actors in the Israeli election being affected by American opinion? We'll find out soon enough, at least in the latest cycle, when we have the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee conference, which is taking place, or rather known as APAC, which is taking place March 24th to March 26th. Leaders of four major Israeli parties will address an American audience, but not with the intention of trying to deliver their party platforms to 18,000 American supporters of Israel, but for the purpose of telegraphing that message so it gets back in the Israeli press. It's sort of like an audition for who best can support the American-Israel alliance. You'll have former Israeli chief of staff, Benny Gantz, the head of the blue-white coalition list, seen as the main threat to the continuity of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's fifth or sixth term as Prime Minister. You'll have Stav Shafir, the leader of the Israeli Labor Party's faction, not the entire party, that's led by a man named Avi Gabay, but the entire Labor Party faction, which will be represented here in the United States. The traditional forefathers of Israel, whether it was Yitzhak Rabin, Shimon Peres, Levi Eshkol, David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of the country, all came from the Labor Party or its predecessor, Mapai. You'll also have Netanyahu himself, but we'll get to him in a second. And lastly, Naftali Bennett, the head of the New Right Party or Yamin Khadash, 
having separated from his traditional base of the knitted yarmulke-wearing settlers and also some of those who considered more national religious. We're not talking about the uh, Orthodox Jews who wear the black hats here, but we're talking about those who are of a more conservative strain that split their vote between Netanyahu's party and those who are living in Jewish townships in Judea and Samaria, also known as the West Bank. And then we get to Netanyahu. His main diplomatic achievement that he is running on is twofold. One, his ability to survive as prime minister and to maintain the U.S.-Israel relationship during the Obama administration, and then pivoting to a two-year golden era, if we want to call it that, which actually may not be so golden once we find out what the Trump peace plan looks like, but a two-year golden era of Netanyahu and President Donald Trump being able to have some kind of commonplace interests where they jettisoned the former Obama policy towards Israel and now are cooperating on every American or joint American-Israel security interest in the Middle East, whether it's Iran, whether it's Syria, Lebanon, the protection of Jordan, re-stabilizing Iraq, and I think the most important, Israel's new relationships with Gulf Arab countries. But we'll talk more about that later. After these messages, we'll be joined by Benjamin Baer, Islamist Watchfellow. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East Studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Talk Philadelphia. We're now joined by someone who I've been reading for the better part of the last two or three years, but I've never had the opportunity to have on the air, Benjamin Baird, fellow at Islamist Watch. Benjamin, welcome to the program. Greg, hi. Great to be here. So Benjamin is a writer for Islamist Watch, a project of the Middle East Forum, and he's also a graduate of Middle Eastern Studies from the American Military University, a member of the Association for the Study of the Middle East and Africa, or ASMIA, and a U.S. Army Infantry veteran of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and campaigns. So, Ben, tell us a little bit about us about you beyond the bio. How did you get to start writing about American Islamism? 
Uh, sure. Well, you know, after my military service, I wanted to do something to, in a way, continue uh, what I did in the military, which was, you know, to fight Islamic extremism, you know, in a different form than I do today. Um, but uh, in the best way I found to do that uh, was to sort of expose um, lawful Islamism um, in America um, and, you know, sort of point some of those things out, which I think um, very much uh, serves to promote the militant extremism, which I encountered in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan during my service. So you're, you're on the killing fields of Iraq and Afghanistan. Every day you don't know when you're going to wake up, what kind of action that you're going to have next. But, you know, most Americans wake up and they're not thinking about Islamist organizations like CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations, ICNA, the Islamic Circle of North America, uh, MAS, the Muslim Action Society. What are the parallels between the enemy that you fought in Iraq and Afghanistan and their ideological compatriots here in the United States? Uh, well, they're they're basically um, guided by the same fundamental beliefs that you know a worldwide caliphate should uh, control. Uh, you know the world. The only difference I would say, or, or the main difference is that lawful Islamists that uh, don't choose to use violence, they use tactics that, uh, that sort of co-opt America's uh, democratic institutions. Um, and in many ways, that can be more effective because, uh, you know, it legitimizes them within, a, within uh, for most Americans. Um, and, you know, these these violent jihadists aren't earning any friends across the world, and in many ways, that's why terrorism fails. Um, but the nonviolent Islamists that we see here are able to work within a system and, uh, you know, be treated as a, a legitimate social and political organization. So you, your, your last article that came out titled Faith-Led 7th Century Justice-Driven really hones in on this point, something that the founder of our organization, Daniel Pipes, has said, which is that violent jihadis get the headlines, but lawful Islamists get the results. And you start off in your second paragraph saying that in boilerplate letters endorsing CARE, the Council on Islamic Relations, American Islamic Relations 25th Annual Banquet and Fundraiser, Nationally prominent lawmakers like Senator Cory Booker praised the nonprofits, and I quote, fight against discrimination of all forms. And presidential candidate Senator Kamala Harris lauded care for welcoming people of goodwill from all faiths and nationalities into our neighborhoods and our schools. Yet, if we look at the history of speakers at these banquets, whether it's on the national level led by Nihad Awad, its founder and, and chief executive, or on some of the local levels, like San Francisco with Zahra Bilu, or looking at Hussein, um, excuse me, uh, uh, the head of the uh, Florida branch, Hussein, not Ibish, but uh, his name will get back to me. Shibli. There, there you go, Shibli. Shibli. Uh, we find that some of America's most vitriolic and hateful speakers are invited to these events, which we find two leading American politicians endorsing. Can you tell us a little bit more about the article and what you were able to find in your research? Uh, sure. It's exactly what you say there. Um, you know, they had over 101 lawmakers endorse them. Uh, many of them were uh, or are 
uh, vying to be or trying to be president of the United States. I think there were five Democratic presidential candidates on that list. Um, but just, you know, days before those letters were uh, presented, there were examples of um, anti-Semitism from many of uh, of CARE's uh, leading members from uh, Hussein Malouf, who recently said that um, the Middle East would be better off if Israel were terminated uh, to CARE San Francisco's director, Zara Ballou, um, who said that... Um, I'm not going to legitimize a country that I don't believe has a right to exist. Um, so there's definitely a disconnect between uh, what CARE is actually doing and the support they're getting from um, many uh, high-ranking and significant um, representatives. Um, now, CARE did, um, concurrent with their fundraiser, they actually held a leadership and policy conference, which... It's sort of a political grooming campaign, uh, which is intended to prepare as many as I think their goal was to get 200 Muslims to run for office in 2020. And we saw some success with that during the midterms uh, with the election of Ilhan Omar uh, and Rashida Tlaib. So, you know, they're not only involved with uh, with fundraising uh, at these events, they're also using them as political political grooming campaigns. So it's not just that there is American legislators' support for the organization, those who are not Islamists, but we also have sort of an inside track here where CARE is recruiting American Muslims to run for office. Now, now let's just preface this by saying that there are over 3,000 American Muslims in the U.S. military who are serving faithfully. There are thousands more, doctors, lawyers, civil servants, who are all dedicated to this country. But if we have an Islamist organization that is going out and recruiting American Muslims, my conjecture here is that they are not the um, patriotic, uh, America first kind of civic leaders that we may want to see in office. But if we can draw a correlation, maybe not necessarily the causation, but a correlation between the values that what CARES speakers, who they invite to their banquets, what their officials say about America's allies in the Middle East, and what their general membership puts forward, do you think it's fair to say that those individuals they are recruiting for office are not necessarily of the same cut that we would expect from a rank-and-file legislator, someone who may have a, 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 a better sense of what American values are rather than what CARE thinks American values are. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. You can just look at the uh, individuals that they, they promoted to speak at those, um, the, their leadership and policy conference. Um, they, they had a Cambridge city councilor by the name of uh, Nadim Mazin, um, who, uh, who was part of the Muslim Students Association, um, with which, by the way, has uh, ties to Islamist uh, groups like the Mother Muslim Brotherhood. Um, but uh, Al-Sayed actually signed a 2012 uh, letter supporting Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi um, and supporting his uh, purging of the media and police. Um, and then, of course, you have uh, other candidates. You can just look at 
what we've seen from uh, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib this last year, who are very much um, in line with CARES values. And they definitely don't represent uh, what the average legislator, uh, you know, any moderate legislator would uh, support. So there's this, um, I think, you know, as days and months and years go by, there's this tendency that CARE has gone past its original leaders, I think six of whom are now serving terms in federal prison for their connection to terror organizations. As the, orga- as the organization evolves, it sort of distances itself from those members of terror organizations that were part of its founding, and now it's found a more politically adept and acceptable, at least from some circles of American society, as indicated by that more than 100 legislators supporting the organization, uh, uh, place in the American political fabric. How do you think organizations that fight lawful Islamism can push back against this general acceptance of the organization? Uh, well, I think, you know, number one, it needs to it needs to happen in Congress. They need to um, start off by um, designating the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization. And once you do that, all of these groups, which, which are actually legacy groups tied to the Muslim Brotherhood, um, will be delegitimized and, uh, you know, they will no longer be looked at as mainstream legitimate organizations. So, Ben, I want to push back on that for a second. You say designate the Muslim sure. Brotherhood a terror organization, but let's look at the different affiliates of the Muslim Brotherhood. If we were to do right. that, some 30% of Jordan's parliament would become uh, ineligible to cooperate with American diplomats, and America needs to be able to focus on them. Turkey's president might ostensibly be on that list. Uh, If you look at the United States and you say, where is the Muslim Brotherhood headquarters? You're not going to find someone that is proudly waving the flag of the Juanilla uh, in New York City or in Los Angeles. They've really been able to, in one way or another, sort of uh, permeate themselves in the American fabric, like I said beforehand. And they've said, no, we have nothing to do with these people. The people who were part of the Muslim Brotherhood, they've now become, you know, a distance and we've separated ourselves from there. They've become a lot more smart in their ability to get away from that. But if you could maybe be a little bit more specific of what the difference is between the members of the Brotherhood who are right now leading a uh, uh, below-the-radar front group in Egypt trying to usurp the Sisi regime versus those who are in care. I mean, there's there's a chain of logic which would have to be built to connect the original MB members who started organizations like CARE and now their second or even third generation affiliates that are here in the States. Sure. Uh, you know, there, there are definitely differences between them. I think each, uh, each organization needs to be held accountable for, you know, their own, their own actions. And I think you can look at groups like CARE and you can look at uh, their, their ties to uh, militant Islamist terrorist groups around the country from Hamas or around the world from Hamas to, uh, to Hezbollah. You can look at many of their uh, leadership's tacit support for, you know, members of these organizations. And you can, uh, you can sort of uh, juxtapose those with, um, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, which sort of uh, serves as a uh, a social welfare front, and by uh, by supporting the people where the government fails to help, 
Um, and I, you know, I think each individual needs to be held accountable for their own actions uh, here in America and abroad. I, uh, I I couldn't agree more. And I think that there's been a really good effort from the project that you're part of at Islamist Watch trying to deconstruct American Islamism. I mean, looking at some of the articles that you've written and your colleagues have written over the past two or three years, you look at schools, you look at cafeterias, you look at churches, you look at uh, public administration, mayor's offices, you're going to every single banquet that exists on the Islamist spectrum here in the United States, and you're really taking apart the mechanisms which are supporting this form of lawful extremism, albeit it should be condemned here in this country. If I'm a listener listening or, or, or reading um, your, your, your uh, segments or, or hearing out your interviews, what are the things that I should be looking for in my local community if I'm asked to engage with local Muslim groups and differentiating between Muslims and, and, and Islamists? Uh, sure. Well, you know, Islamists believe um, in political Islam. They believe that um, their religion should permeate every aspect of their life. Um, whereas your moderate Muslims, um, you know, aren't, they aren't going to feel that way. They're going to feel that, um, Western values are very much part of their life as well. They're not going to, uh, look at an extreme interpretation of, um, Islamic texts. Um, you know, you're, you're going to see, uh, very big differences in, in the people and organizations that they support. Um, and, uh, you know, it should be pretty apparent by, uh, you know, by many of their basic foundational beliefs about their religion. Ben, would you mind taking a few questions from the audience? Sure. Absolutely. All right. So we're going to give the number, go to a break, and then we'll be back with Ben Baird. The number here to call in on the station is 1-888-329-3306. Again, you can call in and reach myself and Benjamin Baird at 1-888-329-3306. After these messages, Benjamin Baird answers our listeners' questions. Fascism was the danger to American interests in the early 20th century. Communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watchwatch.org. Or check us out on Twitter, at Islamist Watch. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. 
And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. So, Ben, we had an uh, email come in across our uh, network here. And uh, John in Tacoma, Washington asks us, what is the most dangerous Islamist group in the United States? The most dangerous Islamist group in the U.S.? Um, you know, I would have to say CARE qualifies for that simply because they are uh, the biggest. They call themselves the biggest civil rights and social uh, civil rights and Muslim advocacy group. Um, but you look at, uh, you know, during the last administration, uh, CARE is very much embedded within the White House. Um, you look at even now the support they receive from um, 100 members of Congress. And uh, I think that's what makes them the most dangerous. They're the most legitimate. They are viewed as um, a uh, you know, an innocuous organization, which they are not. And we have Michael in Philadelphia who asks us, Ben, you've told us about American Islamist organizations. What are Muslim organizations we should be working with? Uh, you know, there's the, the moderate reform movement among Muslims is, uh, is, is very large, but it's, uh, you know, it's not acknowledged in these same ways as these radical organizations. Um, you have Zukti Jasser's uh, uh, group, which the name escapes you right now. Um, American Islamic Forum for Democracy. That's right. Um, you know, uh, there are many organizations just like that. You can find them listed, I believe, on Islamist Watch um, that are legitimate organizations that should be... Uh, very much a part of the national discussion um, and and are not right now because care sort of undermines them and, and uh, you know, at every turn sort of, um, sort of works to delegitimize them. Ben, thank you for your answers. We have to go, but we hope you will join us again here on Middle East Forum Century Radio. It's been great, Greg. Thank you. And now we have our next guest, Professor Ofra Bengio, a senior research fellow at the Moshe Dayan Center for Middle Eastern and African Studies at Tel Aviv University and the head of the Kurdish Studies program at the Moshe Dayan Center. Additionally, she's a lecturer at Shalem College in Jerusalem, coming with a field of specialization in contemporary Middle Eastern history, modern and contemporary politics of Iraq, Turkey, and the Kurds. She's also interested in culture and literature of Middle Eastern societies. Professor, welcome to the program. Thank you. So I've uh, been a follower of your work, of Asher Susser, of uh, Nir Balms, who I believe is one of your colleagues, and we really have to ask you today to start off the program, what is the current uh, possibility for there to be a free Kurdish state in the Middle East, whether we're talking about northeastern Kurds in Syria, the southeastern Kurds in Turkey, those in the north of Iraq, or those in the northwest of Iran? What are the prospects for a Kurdish state in 2019? Yeah, the problem, if I could hear you, I couldn't hear you well, but what I wanted to stress is the fragmentation of the picture, of course. And in each of the countries, the Kurds have different lot and different uh, 
agenda, and that's why we can't see, we can't speak about Kurds in general. We can speak about the Kurds in Iraq, Kurds in Turkey. In in each country, the story is completely different, and we should see them in the light of what's going on in that country. It is a kind of mirror for the country itself, like in Iraq, for example, where it is so fragmented. It has been so fragmented, so the Kurds could manage to have a kind of state of their own, almost. But in Iran, where, where the government is strong, the Kurds are, you know, are isolated and silenced, and uh, almost no one knows that there are Kurds in Iran. So in each country, you have a different story, and you have to analyze it according to what's going on in that country. So let's get in depth here to talk about Iraq's Kurds. About a year ago, they had the opportunity, more than a year now, 16 months ago, they had the opportunity to declare Mm -hmm. independence. And there was a referendum that went forward and they decided to separate from the central government in Baghdad. And the reaction from the Iraqi government was to invade areas that had been previously captured by the Kurdish regional government and the Peshmerga, their military forces, uh, after they had helped defeat... Liberated, liberated, you know. Right, liberated. Liberated. Liberated from Daesh, from ISIS. So what was the Kurdish calculus or political calculus in declaring independence and why was the Iraqi government's reaction so harsh? It was not a declaration of independence. It was, as you remember, it was a referendum for, to find out what is the reaction of the Kurds, if they really want to have uh, independence, and also to see what would be the reaction of the international you know, community. They were hoping that the Americans, at least, would, would stand by them or don't let uh, Baghdad do what it did, but this was their frustration and maybe their miscalculation. They were building on support from the United States, and uh, this was their big mistake, because uh, even if, if the United States had just said, okay, don't do it to Baghdad, it, you know, things would have been completely different. Maybe the Kurds wouldn't have independence, but Kirkuk and the other places wouldn't have gone to the uh, Baghdad once again, where now we see it is in turmoil. Kirkuk, after being, you know, a bit... Uh, uh, you know, things were quite, uh, uh, and how should I say, uh, quite good in Kirkuk, but once it fell again into the hands of Baghdad, now it's uh, in, in, in a state of turmoil, and uh, the Kurds um, are not being able to rule again in Kirkuk in any way. Um, they miscalculated the reaction of the, you know, the countries surrounding them, especially in Turkey, because Turkey was giving signals that it might support them. For some time, it gave some such signals in order to buy the vote of the Kurds in Turkey. But then when they went into a referendum, it just did the opposite of what was expected from it. And so the two partners who could have supported it to go uh, to such a bold action, namely Turkey and the United States, didn't, uh, you know, didn't come to its uh, hope, so that's why they, they failed to do it. 
And now we see a similar situation with the United States promising to withdraw all but 400 of their forces from northeast Syria, where there's a significant Kurdish population. What portends for the future of Syria's Kurds? Yeah, it's, you know, it's the same scenario, it seems that. But the Kurds of Syria might have, you know, a different, uh, different result because they are also having relations with Russia. They are pinning their hopes on Russia, not that it would support them because it gave the green light to Turkey to attack Afrin, the Kurdish city. But they are hoping that it will mediate between them and the. Um, and Assad, and also that it will stop Turkey to invade Syria, because it is not in, in, in the interest of Russia that Turkey will be ruling the north of Syria, because in this way, uh, Syria would lose that part of, of, of Syria. So in this way, the Kurds are trying to, you know, to buy time and to try and maneuver between all these forces. But um, yeah... After they uh, they have you know have spent so much time and and money and and uh, you know blood in order to conquer these areas from Daesh, they are going to pay the price once again. But it seems to me that they are more they are trying, as I said, to find some solution with the government uh, of uh, Assad, and maybe in this way they will not be uh, treated as it was. As and this was the case in, in Kurdistan of Iraq. So the American relationship... But the story of them is the same. It repeats itself in the same way. Right. And, and um, the, 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 they the, didn't promise to support the Kurds anyway, but this was the mistake of the Kurds in pinning their hopes in the United States. And if we look at 45 years of America's history with the Kurds, going back to 1974 and 1975, with, I believe, the Treaty of Algiers, that took place between the Iraqi yes. government and the Kurdish parties there to stop the first Iraq or center Iraqi uh, government conflict with the Kurds. Can you tell us a little bit about why the Kurds have put so much faith in their American partners only to be betrayed conflict after conflict? I mean, I guess the one exception that we have is with the declaration of the no-fly zone after the 1991 Gulf War where the Kurds were able to get a certain level of autonomy in northern Iraq. But besides that... Because then it's just the American interest, you know. Uh, why do they... Because I think they are more Western-oriented, and they hope that this is the way they will be, you know, uh, accepted in the world. If they are... Um, they, first of all, they are more secular than the other people uh, surrounding them. Then, even from the time of the Mullah Mustafa Barzani, the father... He was hoping to find any connections with the with the West, with the United States, and were using even Israel in order to help them get to the United States. They have this kind of um, um, unrealistic hope that uh, the the uh, Americans will solve their problem by supporting them, and they fall again and again in the same trap. And I don't know why, as I told you, because I think they are more secular, more. Um, Western-oriented, um, more um, uh, hopeful of the Western um, Kurdish um, alliance. This is the, the main explanation, and and the fact, as I said, because they don't, 
they they saw Islam, they see Islam as an intruder into their life. They were forced to be Muslims before they were Zoroastrians or whatever, and so their culture is is more Western-oriented than, let's say, Muslim-Arabic-oriented. And they uh, they keep, you know, hoping and hoping, but they don't they don't learn learn their lesson. This is the problem. The point is that they don't have other allies to to pin their hopes on. You see, they are surrounded uh, as Israel was uh, with all kinds of enemies. But Israel had the outlet to the sea. They don't have outlet to the sea. So whoever gives them any little hope, they try to grab to it and to do you know, to continue having relations. And now if we take the situation in Iraq, for example, what is the, the alternative for the Kurds of Iraq right now? Is it to fall into the laps of Iran, which is now, you know, becoming the hegemon in Iraq? In Iraq? Or maybe to try to keep the relations with the, with the Americans in the hope that at least as long as the Americans are there around, they will have keep some of their autonomy, which they have, you know, that with such long um, fighting. So they don't have too much alternatives. And even when the uh, Kurds are seeking their own internal political processes, if we take northern Iraq as an example, there's two main competing political parties, the Kurdish Democratic Party or the KDP and the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, the PUK. Why are there... Some uh, uh, differences between these Kurdish political factions, and how does how do those differences hurt the cause for fighting for Kurdish independence? Well, this has to do with history back to the 1960s when um, the party, which then came to be PUK, uh, decided to go against the Mullah Mustafa Barazani and. From the 60s, they, were, they, they started to develop relations with Iran. Since that time, you know, the, the PUK has become almost a kind of proxy for Iran, especially if we, if we now see what um, the president is doing with Iran. Um, you know, he is just giving Iraq in a platter to Iran. Uh, to do whatever it wants with all these um, uh, things that they have just uh, done right now with the Rouhani's visit, etc. So this this um, relationship or this rivalry between these two groups is of long standing, and uh, one is pro-Iranian or let's say proxy of Iran, and the other is proxy of Turkey. And there is also the fighting over the um, oil, who is getting oil, etc. And of course, it affected very, very negatively the the standing of the Kurds, the Kurdistan regional government. Had the PUK not um, supported the Iran and other forces, maybe Kirkuk wouldn't have fallen into the hands of Baghdad once again. But it was the proxy of. Um, the PUK uh, Talabani group, which, you know, caused this terrible damage, and it will continue unless they are able to uh, unite their forces. It's very difficult for them, you know, to continue and, and to hope for an independence or at least strong autonomy.
And if it but, was, if it wasn't, if know, it wasn't complicated yeah. enough to look at what's going on in Iraq with these two different parties, when we focus on Turkey, we then find two different political factions of Kurds. We find the PKK, the registered terror organization from 1984, which was waging an armed campaign against mm-hmm. the central government in Ankara and also some other forces in Istanbul. And then I believe the HDP, the Kurdish political party led by Selatin Demeritas, who's now, I think, in a Turkish jail. What's the uh, the difference between the Marxist-oriented values of the PKK and the democratic-oriented party, which is running for the Turkish parliament. And, and how does Turkey treat them as the same or different? And, and what's their future prospects for autonomy in Turkey? The HDP was the first and only party which managed to enter into parliament in 2015. Before that, uh, they couldn't enter the parliament because um, of the... Um, the 10% um, leverage, which was, you know, no party could have done. So what happened in um, 2015, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, 2015 was that um, Erdogan was hoping that HDP will support him in the presidency uh, running, to run as a president, but they didn't. And from that point on, things began, you know, to fall apart and... (laughs) Even now, as you know, everybody knows that the head of the HDP is in prison and other members of the HDP are in prison. And actually, they are very much, um, they are not PKK, but they are in terms of their ideology, in terms of their worldview, in terms of um, the way they think a country should be um, uh, developed. They are not very different from the PKK, but PKK itself you can say it is not terrorist it has left terrorism since long time ago we don't know we don't hear of any attacks against civilians yes there are you know they have done a lot of mistakes during the 2015 and and um, later on but but we don't see them carrying um you know um terrorist attacks against civilians but anyway, Turkey now puts everybody in the basket of PKK, the HDP, and all the any any Kurd who is even just mentioning Kurdistan. It is now a very a, a kind of it might you might take you it might take you to prison. For example, Erdogan has um, uh, one of the leaders of the HDP. Uh, running for the uh, elections, coming elections, municipal elections, he mentioned that he hoped that the, um, the HDP will prevail in Kurdistan, and uh, Erdogan used it in order to say, no, there is no Kurdistan, there's, if you want Kurdistan, go out of this country, go to to Iraq, etc. So even the word Kurdistan is, and Kurd is really... It's very dangerous to use, and people are being sent to prison just because of this. So what you're saying is, is Amer- one one country that America's, or at least some of America's diplomatic and military establishment considers to be its ally in the Middle East, is criminalizing speech, which is meant to not necessarily promote secessionist behavior, but a political dream of a significant minority 
that constitutes millions of people in Southeast Turkey, while at the same time the U.S. is embracing the Kurdish military allies of the Syrian self-defense forces in northeast Syria and then certain factions of the Kurdish regional government in northern Iraq. But it seems to me that America uses the Kurds when it's convenient for their national security interests and then abandons them when it comes for the, the, the pedal to hit the metal or the rubber to hit the road. In this case, when the Kurds ask mm-hmm. something from America in return. So my last question to you would be if you were the, let's say, national security advisor to the American president, or if you had influence over the American security establishment, what would be two or three steps you would recommend that the U.S. take to back the Kurds more than they're doing right now? What are three tangible things that the American government can do to ensure Kurdish autonomy, security, independence, whatever it is you think is best for the region? First of all, not to, you know, to make the distinction between good Kurds and bad Kurds, and they have done all the time, for example, between the Kurds of Iraq and the Kurds of Turkey, because the Kurds of Turkey also need some support, and they have, Turkey has, uh, in U.S. has leverages over Turkey to stop persecuting its own Kurds. This is one thing. The other thing is really to help Kurds who are helping the, Kurds, the, the American uh, security, for example, in Iran, if, they, if, uh, if um, Donald Trump decided that, uh, uh, you know, to put all this pressure on Iran, why not align himself also with the Kurds of Iran, who could support um, the, uh, the cause of the Kurds and at the same time also uh, support the cause of the Americans. Uh, the same is true also for the Kurds of Iraq, because... Now, the, the Shiites and the Arabs, most of the Arabs are, are under the tutelage of Iran. There is no doubt about it. And if there is any hope that um, the United States will still have some influence on Iraq, it depends on its relations with the Kurds, who are still pro-Americans, the most pro-American element in, in this country. And in Syria, the same. In Syria... In Syria, what we are seeing is that if, if it supports the the the, the Kurds in Syria, they 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 will have gained a lot of points. First of all, vis-à-vis Russia. Second of all, vis-à-vis Assad, and third of all, vis-à-vis Turkey. But we we hope that the United States will do something or some of these points which I mentioned. Professor, thanks for joining us this morning, or I guess it's the evening in Tel Aviv right now. I hope you'll be able to come on again. Thank you very much. And and if we uh, can just find out how we can read more about your writings on Turkey, can you share the website for the Dion Center? Yes, please do. And other places as well. You have just to, to write my name and you will find so much material. Okay, and, and you'll be up on the website on www.dbam.com. Have a good afternoon. After these messages, we'll have our concluding thoughts. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, 
a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. To end our program today, I thought we would tur- turn to Algeria, Iran, and also to Syria with three stories that are coming out of the region that are of particular concern and that we have not spoken about since the inception of this program. And I think that the coverage of Algeria has not received attention from mainstream media since the inception of the Arab Spring in in the spring of 2011. Coming from Middle East Online, Lakhdar Brahimi, a former foreign minister and UN special envoy, and protest groups will join a conference planning Algeria's future after President Abdelaziz Bouteflika yielded to mass demonstrations and agreed not to run again. This is an individual who's 84 years old. He's been in control of Algeria for over 30 years, and he finally has decided to step down. The article continues saying that the current president stopped short of stepping down immediately And crowds who took to the streets of Algiers, Algeria's capital, on Tuesday said they wanted a quick transition. Algeria's powerful military is expected to play a behind-the-scenes role during the transition and is currently considering several civilians as candidates for the presidency and other top positions. One of them includes a prominent lawyer and activist, Mustafa Bouchachichi, who has gained a wide following on Facebook during the protests. This is the last country to be affected by the Arab Spring, eight years after the original protests started breaking out throughout the Middle East. And I think that it's somewhat relevant that where it started in Tunisia with the self-immolation and burning of a street vendor that led to the leader of that country fleeing to Saudi Arabia, it's now coming full circle to its neighbor, Algeria, seeing who might be elected in this next and hopefully last cycle of these violent protests. Coming from Iran, hardline cleric Ibrahim Raisi, according to Reuters, has swiftly emerged as one of Iran's most powerful figures and a contender to succeed Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. Last week he was named Chief of the Judiciary, and on Tuesday he was elected Deputy Chief of the 88-member Assembly of Experts, the clerical body responsible for choosing the Supreme Leader. Raisi ran in presidential elections in 2017, criticizing pragmatist President Hassan Rouhani. Not much of a pragmatist, but if you compare him to the rest of Iran's leaders, maybe he's a little less tyrannical. 
for signing a deal with the United States and other powers to curb Iran's nuclear program in return for lifting sanctions. In a fiery election speech, Rouhani accused Raisi of being a pawn to the security services and said Iranians would not vote for those who have only known how to execute and jail people. Raisi's failure in the elections was widely attributed to a then 28-year-old audio tape that surfaced in 2016 and purportedly highlighted his role in the executions of thousands of political prisoners in 1988. It's ironic that we have someone who's running for office that was rejected by the Iranian people in their sham elections. I mean, if you lose a sham election, that really doesn't portend well for you to become the leader or a dictator of a country, and you have to rely on 88 clerics to be able to be elected the supreme leader, thereby trumping any hopes of Iranian democracy. And lastly, coming out of Syria, the end of the Islamic State, at least the end of the physical and geographical control of the Islamic State, in southern Syria. Reporter also from Reuters, the Islamic State faced imminent defeat in its final enclave on Tuesday as hundreds of jihadist fighters and their families surrendered and the U.S.-backed Syrian Democratic Forces said the battle was as good as over. The coalition said in an email earlier on Tuesday that there were an estimated few hundred foreign Islamic State fighters remaining in Baghouz who had decided to fight to the end. The SDF had laid siege to Baghouz for weeks, but has repeatedly postponed its final assault to allow thousands of civilians, many of them the wives and children of Islamic State fighters, to leave. We've got about 20 seconds left. I want to thank again Professor Bungidi and also Benjamin Baird for joining us this morning. And beyond that, our production assistant Delaney Janchik, our communications director Lisa Barbunis, and all the staff at the Middle East Forum for helping us put together this great program. We'll join you next week here on Middle East Forum Century Radio. Greg Roman signing off.